0: Come out of the reading of God's word from the book of Job, I see a number of um, parallels with that psalm that we just sang, Psalm 41, where God's servant maintains his integrity even as his own friends speak against him, speak uh, evil against him and long for his judgment. Then he prays that that same judgment would actually come back upon them. That's what we just sang in Psalm 41, and that's what we see here in Job 27, as we now draw toward the close of this uh, 24 chapter dialogue between Job and his three friends who have uh, become his enemies. So we'll begin reading at Job 27, verse 1. We'll also uh, read after that from, from the New Testament. Moreover, Job continued his discourse. And said, as God lives, who has taken away my justice and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say, you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of a wicked man with God, the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. His offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it. And the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth. Like a booth which a watchman makes, the the rich man will lie down but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. We'll also read from the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, I'll read verses 1 through 8. This is the parable of the persistent widow, which we consider as it relates to Job praying for justice against his adversaries. 18, beginning in verse 1, then he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary, and he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continually coming she weary me. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears along with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Congregation, as we turn our attention back to that reading from Job, I want to remind you where we've been in this book. It began in chapter 1 and verse 1, telling us that Job is a blameless man who fears God and shuns evil. In fact, it will repeat that three times in the opening prologue that we might not forget as we keep on reading that Job is a righteous man. In fact, the next passage that we'll consider in Job 28 will define wisdom the very way that it has defined Job. Wisdom is to fear God and shun evil. So Job is demonstrating for us wisdom. Job is is being presented to us as blameless. And yet we meet in chapter 1, verse 6, Satan, who is literally called the Satan or uh, the accuser, who says that Job is not righteous, who says that he doesn't really love God, but only loves him for the stuff that God gives him. And so he says to God, if you take all of his stuff away, if you make him suffer, then he will curse you to your face. The implication being that that Satan is saying to God, because you are not worthy of worshiping apart from your gifts. And so what this book really is, is a conflict between God and Satan. It is a, a battle for the glory of God with this righteous man who is called God's servant right at the center. He is the focal point in this battle. The battle between God and Satan centers on the fate of this single righteous sufferer. It is Genesis 3.15, God waging war on Satan through the heel of his servant being bruised. And throughout the book, the way that Job speaks of himself sounds an awful lot like the psalmist in many of the messianic psalms. You think of Psalm 69 or Psalm 109, where his friends fail to comfort him but return his kindness with insults. Or Psalm 41, which we just sang, or Psalm 22, where Christ is called a worm. We just heard in Job 25 a week ago or two weeks ago, picking up on that. In just a couple chapters, when we get to Job 29, he'll be cast in in the light of Psalm 72. And so what we're seeing throughout this book is that Job is a prophetic depiction of the gloriously exalted righteous servant who will silence the accuser through suffering. He is a type of Christ. He is one of the first pictures that God gives us in the unfolding drama of redemption of what it will look like when the seed of the woman comes and fulfills that promise in Genesis 3. It's important that we keep all of that context in mind as we look at Job 27. Because what Job is going to say here is that their opposition to him actually places them in opposition not just to him, but to God so that God's judgment will come upon them so long as they maintain this hostile stance toward him, the one in whom Christ is foreshadowed. If they continue to set themselves against God's servant, then they side with the accuser and his fate will be theirs. Satan's fate, which we heard of two weeks ago, where he, the serpent, will be pierced and broken, as it said in Job 26.12. Job here prays that if they continue to set themselves against the one in whom Christ is foreshadowed, that their hostility toward the gospel would result in God's judgment. We see three things this morning in Job 27 as Job warns us of the danger of opposing God's suffering servant. We see him doing this by first protesting his innocence in verses one to six, then by praying for justice in verses 7 to 10. And finally, by preaching about judgment in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Job protests his innocence, prays for justice, and preaches judgment. to be first, at how he protests his innocence. going we see this in verses 1 to 6 where he swears an oath and says, as God lives... And as long as his breath is within me, as long as the breath of God that, that God breathed into man in Genesis 2, 7, as long as that remains in my nostrils, my lips and my tongue will not utter deceit and say that you are right. Here he's speaking to, to Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. He's saying, I will not admit that you are right. I will not admit that I've committed some secret sin to bring all of this suffering upon me because that would be a lie. It would be to speak wickedness and utter deceit because it is not true. And so he says, I will not put my integrity away from me, but my righteousness I will hold fast and I will not let it go. Job here is vigorously defending what God has said of him in chapter one and what God will say of him again in chapter 42. That he's righteous. And he's making the point that to say otherwise would actually be to compromise his integrity. That to lie and make up some sin, feigning repentance in order to get his stuff back, would be sin. It would be the very thing that Satan wants for Job, instead of patiently waiting until God's appointed end, when he will restore him, to take matters into his own hands. I've made this this point a few times as we've been going through the book, but one A recent book on Job that was just published, I think, puts this very well. I'm speaking of this this temptation to false repentance. It says, to engage in some pious religious ritual with a pretense of repentance would simply be a way of manipulating God for personal gain. To engage in some pious religious ritual with a pretense of repentance would simply be a way of manipulating God for personal gain, and that course would have proved Satan to be right, and that's why Job refuses to do it. To deny his innocence would be to forfeit his integrity for personal gain. It would be to use God and and his his, uh, relationship with him, his religion, as a means to an end which is the very thing that Satan has accused him of in chapter one. It's the very thing that Satan tries to get Christ to do in Matthew four, in that wilderness temptation. To skip the cross and seize the crown. To take a shortcut around all of this suffering and just listen to the voice of the serpent. The voice of the serpent that here in Job has been speaking through his friends. Job says, I will not deny my integrity. What he does here is actually a lot like what the psalmist does in Psalm 41, where he says to God toward the end of that psalm, I know that you are pleased with me and you uphold me in my integrity. In Psalm 7, the psalmist says, Lord, they persecute me. They try to tear me in pieces like a lion, but you know that I've not done this, that there is not iniquity in my hands. So often the psalmist appeals to his innocence. And that's what Job is doing here. You may have heard people say before that that the problem with Job is is his pride, how he, he keeps claiming innocence. But what he's doing here is the same thing the psalmist does. It's not a claim of perfect righteousness. It's a claim that he has lived before the face of God and the false accusations of the friends are not true. It's a claim that he is not hiding anything. It's a claim that his suffering is not for the sake of sin, but for the sake of God's righteous cause. He's claiming that his is a redemptive suffering. That's what Job is claiming. He's, he's not claiming that he's without sin. In fact, if you've been uh, looking, uh, listening carefully as we've been going through Job, he says in uh, 7 verse 21, pardon my transgression, Lord, and put away my iniquity. You might remember in in chapter 14, he longs for his renewal after death when God will seal his transgression in a bag and and cover over his sin. He says in chapter 13, do not make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. And so Job has already admitted several times that he is a sinner. There is no self-righteous, presumptuous claim in Job that he's without sin. In fact, if anyone in this debate is self-righteous and presumptuous, it would be those who seek to usurp the place of God and condemn him. Job is simply stating what he knows to be a fact, even going under oath to maintain it, that his suffering is not because of his sin. And it's so important that he make this claim over and over because remember who Job is a picture of. He is a prophetic picture of the righteous man, par excellence. He is a picture of the one who can sing those psalms in truth. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. He is a picture of the one who never sins. And so the spirit-inspired author is reminding us of that claim over and over to set up a paradigm that will only and ultimately make sense in Christ. We're going to see Job again in a few weeks appeal to his righteousness in, in chapter 31 and this 40-verse-in-length this, uh, um, argument for his righteousness where he goes under oath and does this same thing at much greater length. And the reason why he does so is because he is a picture of Christ whose active obedience is an essential element of the gospel. And he's not only a picture of Christ in the way that he maintains his innocence in chapter 31 or here in, in verses 1 to 6 he maintains his innocence even as his soul is bitter and it feels like justice has been taken away from him. He's also a picture of Christ in the way that he longs for justice in verses 7 through 10. In fact, there's a sense in which we could even say his appeal to innocence in verses 1 through 6 is itself an expression of faith in God's justice as Job believes that God one day will vindicate him. And so he keeps bringing up this innocence over and over again because he believes that the God of justice will do right And so in line with that, he prays in verses 7 through 10 that as part of that vindication where the God of all the earth who always does right will exalt his suffering servant, he prays in verses 7 through 10 that as part of that vindication that God would judge his enemies. He says, may my enemy be like the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. As we've been working our way through Job, Can you think of who Job might be referring to when he speaks of his enemies? Boys and girls, when, when Job speaks of those who rise up against him, who are the ones who are doing that time after time throughout the book? He's referring to his friends. In a sense, to Satan as well, but also the friends who have become the servants of Satan who are lining up their arguments with his, who are opposing God's righteous servant and rising up against him in the same way that Christ's enemies will rise up against him. Even those who were his friends, like Judas. In fact, that psalm we sang, Psalm 41, where even the king's familiar friend rose up against him, even the one with whom they ate bread together rises up against him. The New Testament applies that to Judas who the psalmist then prays for judgment against. Job does the same thing here. His friends who have become his enemies and persecuted him, siding with the accuser against God's servant and and denied righteous suffering, who who have denied the possibility that God would cause a righteous man to suffer and have therefore denied the gospel, maligning the righteous one by smearing him with false accusations, Job prays that God would judge them. Again he does what the Psalmist does so often. We see this especially in the Psalms of David, who who says uh, things like Job does, and he says, Lord, those who rise up against me are ultimately not just opposing me, but you and your kingdom, so judge them, remove them, cause them to be like the wicked who you will repay. They have been standing up as his accusers throughout this book, accusing him of gross immorality. Think especially of places like chapter 22 where they say that he's the most wicked man on earth. And Job is saying, may the judgment that they continue to say, I deserve, may it come against them. Job is saying the same kind of thing that Deuteronomy 19 will say when it says if a false witness rises against a man and testifies against him of wrongdoing then you shall do to that false witness the thing that he he sought to have done to his brother. Job is praying in accordance with God's justice that will later be revealed in the law. He's saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, let their accusations come back upon them. He's praying for justice. He's not seeking vengeance. Job is not seeking here to take matters into his own hands. and In fact, he'll say in chapter 31 that he does not rejoice at the destruction of those who hate him. Which means that he is not praying out of of some ill will. He's not praying sinfully. He's not harboring unrighteous hatred but he is praying out of a concern for the justice and glory of God. These people, in seeking to defend God, have actually set themselves against him and against his servant and have therefore positioned themselves to deny the gospel they're doing the same thing that Christ's accusers and Christ mockers, Judas and the Pharisees and modern day enemies of the gospel and those who persecute the church all throughout the world and mock Christ and mock his servants. He's doing, they're doing the same thing that they will do. So Job is saying, Lord, judge them. He's saying, Lord, destroy the devil's work and every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. He's praying, thy kingdom come. He's praying in the way that Lord's Day 48 teaches us to pray. He's, he's praying and saying, Lord, take every other kingdom, every enemy of the gospel, and as Luther said, put them in a pile and pour curses, malediction, and disgrace upon them. May they be ruined and torn apart, and all their plans and schemes and wisdom run aground. Job is praying with a concern for the kingdom of God. Job is praying with a concern for the gospel that is being revealed in his suffering. It is doing the very thing that Christ will speak of in Luke 18, where he says that that woman went day after day after day to the judge and asked for justice from her adversary, and eventually he granted her request. And as Christ gets to the meaning Of that parable he says will not God judge his elect or will not God then avenge his elect who cry out to him day and night? Remember in the introduction to that parable it says that Jesus told that parable in order to teach his disciples how to pray and not lose heart. He told it to teach them and to teach us how to pray for justice. Job is here praying for justice. Job is here doing what what David Wells calls rebelling against the world in its fallenness and refusing to accept as normal what is not. That's what he's doing also when he cries out to God in lament. That's what he's doing here as he prays to God for justice. And that's what we do as we too pray that God would right every wrong, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. We don't pray verses 7 to 10 with regard to our own personal enemies, with regard to the enemies of Christ and the church of whom Job is a type. We do so hoping that, that, that perhaps in God's providence he will use temporal judgments in this life to turn those enemies to him in faith and repentance. That's what will happen to Job's enemies who in the end will become his friends as he intercedes for them in righteousness. And and so this sort of prayer is not at odds with an evangelical spirit. But as in Psalm 83, sometimes these prayers for judgment are unto conversion. In their case, it will be. But for any who continue to set themselves against Christ and the gospel, it will not be. That's the point that Job makes in the rest of this chapter, where after protesting his innocence in verses 1 to 6, an innocence, by the way, that is not somehow compromised by his prayer for justice in verses 7 to 10, he then preaches about judgment in verses 11 to 23. This really is tied quite closely with his prayer for justice. And yet, you see a bit of a shift in the grammar, where instead of, of speaking in terms of, of petition, as in verse seven, where he says, "May my enemy be like the wicked," and now Job begins to preach with us, preach to us, and he says, "I will teach you about the hand of God." He teaches his friends who have become his enemies, and he teaches also us about the judgment of God that will come on those who deny the mediator that Job has been longing for. About the judgment of God that will come upon those who deny the possibility of righteous suffering, who deny the gospel that is being pictured and presented in Job's suffering. Of God's Son, who will suffer the righteous in order to silence the accuser for the glory of God. That's what this whole drama is all about. It's about Christ and the prophetic picture that Job's life is. And so now Job says, Those who continue to rise up not only against me, but against the one I foreshadow, this is what will happen to them. Verse 13 their heritage and their portion include five things. First, he speaks of their family in verse 14 being destroyed. It says, those who survive them will be buried in death. Their widows will not weep, meaning there will be no one to mourn for them since judgment will come to their whole family. Second, he says, the righteous will inherit the wealth of the wicked. All of the riches that they gained in this life will be, be nothing, as Job said earlier in verse 8, though he gained much, God will take his life away. He may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Job is saying, for the wicked man who maligns God's innocent and righteous suffering servant and propagates his anti-gospel sentiments to his children, not only he, but they, provided they they follow in their father's footsteps, will be taken away. Whatever wealth he has acquired in this life will be nothing. Nothing. Though he has gained the whole world, he will lose his soul and he will not carry his riches into eternity. Third, on what they think is their security, verse 18, will not protect them. When the judgment comes, in verses 18 and 19, Job speaks of the house that the rich man builds and how he thinks that, that that is his security, but it will not protect him in the end. Bildad and and Zophar and Eliphaz think that their security in this life is evidence of their righteousness, and, and so they trust in their works and in their wealth, which they believe is somehow an evidence of their works. But Job is saying, you have built your house upon the sand. Do not trust in your wealth, do not trust in your works, but trust in the mediator to come. That's been Job's message all throughout. The Redeemer, the one of chapter 9 and chapter 16 and chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. He's saying anyone who does not trust in him. Fourth, will be swept away by the terrors of death. Verse 20, he says, terrors overtake him like a flood. Like the flood in Noah's day. A tempest steals him away in the night, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, like a thief in the night. It speaks of the east wind that carries him away and he's gone. Job is using language of, of judgment. Think of the east wind that, that caused the waters to part and then come down over Pharaoh, the, the, the flood of, of judgment in Noah's day. And he's saying all who oppose God's servant not just Job, but but, but the greater than Job, will experience this judgment. And then fifth, they will be mocked. Even as Job is being mocked, as death will clap its hands at them. This, beloved, is the judgment that will come against all who set themselves against the one who this book is preparing us for. Job is warning us of the danger of opposing God's servant, of the danger of opposing the righteous one whom God has justified. In in doing that, they foreshadow those who will oppose our Lord Christ, and this is the judgment that will come against all who do. We heard last Sunday afternoon of the the judgment that our sins deserve from Lord's Day 4. That's what Job is again preaching to us. He's preaching this not just to his friends, but also to us. And so if you are listening this morning and you are indifferent to Christ and you you do not love him or you mock him like Bildad and Zophar, Job is telling you by the spirit of Christ, judgment awaits you. That you need to be converted. That you need to trust in the mediator and redeemer that Job has been proclaiming both in his words and in his life you need to trust in his sacrifice, his innocent suffering and death, which were not because of his own sin, but in in an, an even greater way than Job, he held fast his righteousness and did not let it go. He did not sin, but was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And so God raised him up in the face of those who mocked him. Like we sang in Psalm 41, God was merciful to him and raised him up that he might repay them. for all who remain his enemies, not trusting in his righteous intercession, but hating him and hating his people. That judgment of Psalm 41 and Job 27 and Luke 18 will be theirs. And so Job is pleading, be reconciled to God through Christ. Is pleading, become his friend and not his enemy and entrust your cause to him and be found righteous, verse 6, not in yourself, but in him. And for all who are, trust that even though you may be called to share in this life with Christ in his suffering, he will bring justice and he will vindicate his own. That's the hope for which Job longs. That's the hope into which Job is inviting us, and it's the hope that he's calling us to pray for and to trust, like that widow in Luke 18, that the God of all the earth will do right. And that when the Son of Man comes and finds such faith, he will reward it. May the Lord give us grace to press on and not lose heart. Amen. Father, again, we thank you for this book and what a clear picture it gives us of the battle between good and evil, the battle between Satan and yourself, which is won by Christ, holding on to his righteousness, suffering innocently and faithfully, even in the face of mockers. Lord, we thank you that by the end of this book, those mockers who hated your son become his friends that you answer Job's prayer for justice by covering their sin through righteous intercession. Same way that you you have, have done through men like Saul who hated Christ and persecuted his church but became his apostle. Lord, we pray that all who oppose the Lord Jesus would indeed be fearful of the judgment that Job has just preached to us and would find refuge in your son. At the same time as your church shares in the suffering of Christ, we pray that you would give comfort in knowing that all who violently oppose your people and your son and do not repent, you will bring justice. Lord, we pray especially that you would comfort your persecuted church with that knowledge, your saints all over the world. pray also that you would help your church here to be standing with them in prayer, even praying in the, the same sort of way that that widow does in Luke 18. And you would give us grace to believe that you are not only slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but also by no means clear the guilty, but do bring justice. Father, for all of this, we thank you and we praise you. For Jesus' sake.